Welcome everyone to our fourth episode of Behind the Stethoscope. This is a podcast run by the physicians at Royal Columbian, Eagle Ridge Hospital, and the community physicians in between. Today we have a conversation between myself, Dr. Mark Matashak, and Dr. Pat Millett. Uh, Mark Matashak, many of you guys know, is a neurosurgeon at the Royal Columbian and is semi-retired at this time. And Pat Millett and I work together at Royal Columbian as hospitalists. So what's happening today for our episode? It's almost like a book club. Interestingly, a few years back, I'm going to guess it was like 2013, uh, Pat Millett said to me, I have this great book and I think you're going to like it. Uh, it's The Power of Now. And I had heard about this book and I always thought it was like a business self-development book, but Pat told me a bit about it and I, I quite liked it. And the story was that Pat got this book from Mark Matashak. And so I was thinking it would be really interesting to understand how you came across this book, Mark, and what made you think to share it with Pat. And then Pat, same with you, how you decided to share it with me and how it's affected you. And now we're going to pass the book on to the greater population in Royal Club and Eagle Ridge and the doctors in between. So can I start then? Please. Well, um, Pat can correct me because in my aging brain, I have all the specifics of things past blur all into one. But um, as my wife constantly tells me, I'm a seeker. I look for the answers to life's small and large problems everywhere. Um, and I think it's partly generated by the fact that, you know, in our work, we deal with life and death on a regular basis. And you try to deal with what you do based on a framework of knowledge or understanding or religion or spirituality or maybe nothing. Maybe it's just, you know, happenstance. But I try to read as much as I can, religion, non-religion, spiritual things. And um, I came across the book, The Power of Now, and Eckhart Tolle's proclamations. And it seemed to be a, a synthesis of a lot of Eastern mysticism and philosophy, but put into something more understandable yet simple and um, I liked it. Now I like everything I reserve judgment and I didn't fall into it entirely but I thought it was of value and so I think when Pat was doing neurosurgery he was a neurosurgical hospitalist we got to talking because we were trying to share the suffered the combined pain of looking after all these patients. Um, this came up. What do you recall, Pat? Yeah, I think uh, similar, similarly, I remember that. I think uh, at that time, I was looking for other work uh, outside of the office. You know, I was working as a GP, but I found working in the office was fairly isolating. So I migrated towards the hospital. I was always doing um, you know, uh, admitting patients, you know, as an admitting physician, like all the GPs were doing at that time before they gave up, you know, it's all now different, but 
So at that time, I was looking for something different, and a job came up in the hospital on the neurosurgical ward as a sort of a clinical associate, right? So, yeah, and I, I think one day we were just sitting down at uh, going over some a patient or sitting beside each other at the at the at the main desk, and uh, we got into a little bit of a conversation. I can't remember the nature of the conversation actually, but you did mention the book, so I said, yeah, I mean, I'd be really interested in looking at that. So I sort of I took it from there. And um, and I, I th there were things in the book that really resonated with me. I mean, for myself, it was a difficult time. I was had a lot going on in my life at the time, a lot of personal issues. My wife wasn't well, and I was transitioning from really trying to transition out of the office because I found that office practice for me just really wasn't. It was a bit isolating, and it wasn't really doing it for me. So. That's why I came upon the book, and you know, from Mark, and that's I, I became really interested in uh, the study of mindfulness. And again, like you, Mark, I'm, I'm I read a lot, and I I always try to keep an open mind to different perspectives on things, uh, and I'm always looking for ways to sort of improve myself. So, um, you know, if I if I can, I would just say that I started trying. To, to become more knowledgeable about the way I think and about um, trying to understand myself a little better. And that's where the book sort of fit in well for me as a sort of a, like an educational tool. Now, people in the audience may not be aware of this book. So Eckhart Tolle wrote The Power of Now. I'm thinking like 25 years ago, probably. And Pat and I were talking a little bit before the show we wanted to put out a disclaimer under no circumstances would we want people to think that we are an expert on this topic or concepts but we've we've read the book several times and it, it always kind of means something different as you read through it again um would you guys be able to explain to the audience what his premise is well um i'm happy to give it a shot and i'll do a um disclaimer I don't work for Eckhart Tolle, <laughs> but my, I have a weird relationship to him in the fact that my rolfer looks after his wife. And I was getting Rolf yesterday, which I get every three to four weeks because of spine problems that I have. And I, I was had the book with me because I was sitting and reading it while I was waiting in the lobby. And he goes, oh yeah, you want Eckhart to sign that for you? <laughs> Just give it to me and I'll get it signed. And I said, how do you know this? How can you do this? He goes, oh yeah, I look after his wife. I've looked after him for, for her for 10 years. And um, so if you want any of your books of The Power of Now signed, just give them to me and I'll get him to sign <laughs> it. He lives in Vancouver, I'm sure, as you guys know, yeah. and travels around the world. But the, the premise is simple. The premise is to... Um, the power of now is just that, to live in the now or live in the present and to stop ruminating on the past and worrying about the future and your life opens up. Now that sounds fiendishly simple and totally silly for many people, um, but so many basic truths are just that. And he spends the 190 some pages in the book going over why paying attention to what is present, what is happening right now, because 
no matter how bad things are in your life or how bad they were or how bad you envision that they may be, how things are right now at this very moment usually are okay. And so just stick with that and then things eventually will work out. Now we can expound upon that, but I would say that's the basic premise of the book from my perspective anyway. Yeah, for, for me, it was, uh, <clears throat> in my sort of sense of understanding, it was very similar. I, what I really got out of the book, too, was his concept of, like, identification with mind and sort of watching the thinker. And this was a concept that, for me, <clears throat> I never really thought about before. And to me, I understand it as sort of taking a third-party approach sort of the being self of me looking at my my how i think and and the thoughts that go through my head and the predominant thoughts that i think of um and uh this gave me a tremendous sense of uh um of of uh um enjoyment and a, it was a real realization for me because to to, to realize that there's a narrative in my head that I may, I don't always have to believe, you know, that it's there, but it may lead me to places that make me unhappy. And that if I can at least recognize my thoughts and those tendencies that I have, then I might be able to do something to correct them and, and sense become more, um, not just more, by being more present and by recognizing that, just the recognition of my mind that thinks that way is a way to sort of intervene. But just the knowledge of the way I think helped me to make critical changes in the way I approach things and the way I, I, I live my life. And what it's actually done for me is it's actually calmed me down. It's really helped my level of anxiety because I've started to recognize patterns in my thinking um, that, uh, that are not very constructive at times and that lead me in places where I don't want to be. And I notice, for instance, now through the book, actually, uh, that I can recognize when I'm tired, for instance, because my thought patterns actually change. And that's some of the that's one of the concepts that I got out of the book. And the other thing was the concept of random thoughts and how busy our minds are or how my how busy my mind is and how distractible I could be. So it gave me it gave me a real perspective to looking into my, to be more introspective and to understand myself. So I really took a lot from that. And for myself, coming across this book when Pat had given it to me, uh, I was probably at a place where a few years prior to that I had been actually told by one of my colleagues on in the office. She said man, you're, you're, you're so anxious and you let all this stuff bother you so much and you take it so personal, like you need to lighten up, you need to, you need to get some help. So I actually did get a little bit of counseling way back. And um, from that, I, I read some different books about, it was probably she was doing cognitive behavioral therapy on me. And, and I was learning that like, you actually get to choose your thoughts. And so, and your thoughts are your reality, like what you think is is true for you and so with this book you learn like if you are anxious and worried and catastrophizing and a lot of female physicians especially young female physicians are known to be quite perfectionistic which is a very stressful way to be because you can't control all the factors in your life and 
all the factors out there. So you get to learn that you can choose them and they can be a better reality for you. And then on a bigger scale, like Pat and I, we work with many physicians and patients and families and, and you can kind of get a sense of where people are at with their, I don't know what to call it, but maybe their spiritual journey. And um, you get a chance to see that people who are really stuck in their minds, like, and their, their minds and their thoughts are their reality and they're, they're so anxious and worried. And then people who have the ability to fall back into that more essence of the witness and, and watch these things come and go. There's, there's a different energy when you're in the room with them. It's, it's really, really remarkable. And I think I've changed a lot in the last five to eight years, like with this, but it's been a lot of uh, practice and so. And I think a lot of physicians, I mean, my experience is that many physicians I've worked with, um, you know, it's not that they don't, they don't find it that comfortable to talk about these things. And uh, it seems anxiety and stress, especially related to our job, uh, is there, it's obvious, but it's not really talked about very much amongst us. And um, there may be even a, a bit of a, you know, I, I kind of got the sense when, I, when we talked a little bit about using meditation, for instance, around the office, or maybe the concept of maybe we should all sit for a few minutes and just calm ourselves in the morning and just empty our minds and breathe or, you know, this kind of idea met with quite a bit of, uh, a little bit of unexpected resistance. And one of the comments one of the physicians made to me I found was really interesting. And it was that I'm so busy, I can't even imagine, my head is so full of thoughts, I can't even imagine about meditating. I can't even entertain the concept of meditating right now. When in fact, in, in my mind, that person needs that that could use that aspect or that, that tool to their benefit so greatly. So there's a, there's a, there's a real sense of, of, of resistance still, I find. Do you think so, Mark? Well, you bring up many important points. First off, all physicians by nature are obsessive, compulsive, anxious, worried, to a greater or lesser degree, and that degree of anxiety is dependent upon how much problems they or pressure they put on themselves to be perfect, because the, des- the desire has always been to be perfect, to make no mistakes, to make the right diagnosis, to prescribe the right treatment, to have the patients do well, and then, da-da! <laughs> <laughs> and then patients get better, and everything's good, and everybody's happy, and um, your life is fulfilled. But as we all know, that's not always possible. In fact, sometimes it's rarely possible, depending on which patient population we're looking after. And so one has to, at some point in time, develop a certain degree of equanimity in dealing with patients who are sick. And that doesn't mean adopting a laissez-faire attitude or you know, being like Doris Day saying Kesara but it means trying to come to terms with the fickleness of the human state and how people get sick and why they get sick and how much we as physicians can influence that process. Because 
in many ways we can influence it a lot and other ways we can't change it at all they're on a path that despite our best efforts it continues to either their death or dissolution mm. and so any way that you can to use these euphemistic terms get closer to the source or to understand what the essence of being is and do that first in yourself then it can help when you're with other people because they can sense that you are more as you said Joel more grounded and it's not as distressing because there's nothing worse than being in a stressful situation with a bunch of stressed people <laughs> <laughs> and so I've always well to use examples but I'll give one example or maybe two um, during brain surgery you know the proverbial excrement can hit the fan on a regular basis and so I try to have as much or have in the past tried to have as much calming environment as possible so despite my anesthetic colleagues who chastise me on a regular basis I play all sorts of new age music and classical music and when we do things like aneurysms and people's death is perhaps imminent if some disaster happens, I would play Gregorian chant which just would kill the anesthetists. They would say, take that off. But I felt that if the soul was going to depart from this body that they might as well do it in a harmonious environment. <laughs> anyway, that being said, I think the promotion of inner peace, for lack of a better term, is good because we can't always be happy, but if we're at peace, I think is, um, is better than if we're at, in anger or despair or anxiety or depressed or whatever. And so Eckhart Tolle tries to point out the follies of our ways and to try to, as Pat says, be the observer and not let the continual mind talk that plagues all of us be so for, at the forefront of our consciousness and instead the underlying strength of who we truly are can shine forth. Oh. And sort of ask, but what kind of strategies do either of you guys use in your daily lives, like when you were working, Mark, and uh, you, Joel? I, I can tell you what kind of strategies I'm still trying not to use and have been problems in the past because the book really addresses that. So, like Eckhart Tolle will talk about how, um, you, so your, your mind is anxious and busy, and, and even if you're not thinking about things and if you're aren't identified with this essence and this witness here, your mind is just under this constant dis-ease. I don't remember what he calls it, but I call it like dis-ease. And I'll talk to my husband, I say, I have the dis-ease of humanity and I just feel so riled up. But because of this book and the work that I've done, I can actually feel when that's happening and I, I know when that's happening. And, um, and then you can just sit with it and it will pass. But if you're not mindful enough to know about that dis-ease that's sitting in you, um, what humans do is they, they numb themselves. So maybe they watch Netflix for three hours that night, or they eat carbs, drink alcohol, watch pornography, gamble, social media, 
like just stuff to numb themselves out to dis dissipate that accumulation of negative energy that you have yeah. exactly and then you're left worse off than than before so well not with pornography <laughs> <laughs> and, and i must say all of these things are are fine in moderation a fine glass of wine or love making session or whatever but um done in excess you're, you're left worse off than where you started you're trying to get some kind of relief and so pat you asked what are we what are you doing now? And I have uh, kind of a list of things that I have written in my journal called core strengthening. And I just not, it's not an exercise thing, but things that are core strengthening don't involve um, like this dopamine chase of social media or carbs or I'm, I'm lucky. I get really bad migraines if I have more than two glasses of alcohol a day. So I'm, I'm lucky in that respect. So things that you can do outside of that for me, exercise, um, meditation and mindfulness. One of the funny things, like brushing my dog, I have this beautiful hairy monster dog named May, and she's never had a haircut in her life, but the reason she's able to have this long, beautiful hair is because she takes like 30 minutes of brushing three times a week. But I find when I'm doing that and I have to keep her really calm, and like these are all just mindful things where um, it's not a dopamine chase, it's just very calming. So. What else white physicians do to be in the moment or take better self-care? Well, I think being in nature is important. Any aspect of that. So being in outside rivers, streams, oceans, mountains, forests, Sunset. lakes, sunsets, sunrises, um, and enjoying the stillness of outside. Yeah, and uh, I would agree with that and echo that. And walks, just walking um, anywhere, you know, uh, just a change of visual, a change of vis scenery is, is, I find, is, fast, is fantastic for changing one's mindset. Um, in music, concerts, amazing things to go to. You know, knitting. Um, Playing uh, music. And exercise in its various forms, especially in nature. Um, uh, or, or art of any type. Yeah. Yeah. Journaling as well. That's really helpful. Now, all these things to a certain person would seem very frivolous and selfish, like when there's so much work to do. Well, anything that allows a meditative state to occur, I think, is a benefit. And all these activities that promote mind stillness and appreciation of the now are important. I've done, not on a regular basis, but on a, let's say on a haphazard basis, depending on upon my life situation, meditation since age 15. And I've been aware of its importance in my life um, in allowing my best self to come through and I know when I don't meditate that I'm worse off. Um, and what is meditation? Well, it's different things for different people and there are different techniques and there's, you know, you can have a mantra or you can do breath meditation or you can do walking meditation or you could do, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's all various ways, but it's all the, the basic is, and that's the beauty of Eckhart Tolle is that 
he brings it down to a very simplistic thing. And sometimes it's too simplistic because it doesn't give you that specific technique to say that, listen, if you repeat this mantra, you know, 20 minutes, twice a day, you'll achieve spiritual enlightenment. It, he just says, live in the present, feel your body, um, feel the stillness in your body, listen to the silence, um, and forget about what's happened or what's going to happen, because everything that's most important is what's happening right now at this moment. And if you can maintain presence, then everything sorts itself out. Now that sounds way too simple, but it's so attractive that um, it's what spiritual teachers have said throughout the ages. Mm -hmm. And so I try to do that poorly, but still try, it's all in the trying. And that totally, that makes sense. I mean, I, I, I like to, um, yeah, as you say, it, it's a simple concept, very, very difficult to achieve. Mm -hmm. And I think we all have different, probably, abilities to achieve it. Mm -hmm. I don't think we all can meditate well. I mean, some of us can meditate, it's more natural, and some of us would have to work a lot harder at it, for sure. Um, and of course, the, the hardest part for me is to try to keep in the present moment. And so I try to do little things in the day to redirect myself because I find as I get more anxious or life gets busier, I get more distractible. So that for me is a key that, you know, I'm getting anxious and because my body doesn't always respond to my mind. Like even if I'm anxious and having a lot of distracting thoughts, I don't always get nervous, you know, feel that sense of nervousness. It's, there's a disconnect there sometimes. It's not always connected. So. I like to try to take breaks during my day. Uh, I like in the morning to meditate when I get when I lie in bed for a while before I start my day and to try to be thankful and grateful for what I have and then get get going with my day and then while I'm working or what, whatever I'm doing of course I do a lot of exercise which is its own form of meditation which I find tremendously beneficial. But then I just try to take time in my day to uh, recognize things, like try to live, you know, it sounds corny, but try to be an attentive to every moment uh, by, I sort of try to remind myself with little, little things uh, uh, on my phone or headspace sometimes when I'm driving into work, that little app. And during the day, I like to take breaks in the middle of the day. Sometimes when I'm in the emergency department, for instance, I'll just stand and watch, you know, just take a break and just look around. And for me, that's really, really helpful. I'm not judging anybody or anything, but it just gives me a sense of this small being in a massive, massive, you know, world around me. You know, it takes me out of my head and then gives me better perspective on what's going on and that relaxes me. So that helps me just uh, stay um, in the moment. And it really calms me down during the workday. So now I'm a, little, I'm a little more able to recognize when I get anxious and when I get in my head. And that's credit to this type of uh, work. And that uh, anxious feeling like that I've described and, and you were saying sometimes you can actually feel it. 
when you are able to learn to find that anxious feeling, there's actually a very opposite feeling of it for me. So instead of this anxious tightness, worry that like I might feel in my shoulders and my chest, um, the opposite of that for me is in a time of presence or appreciation or gratitude um, is this really interesting, expansive contentment. And so Pat knows, and a lot of people who know me know I really, really like uh, palliative care, and I love end-of-life conversations and the serious illness conversation guide, and I, I love to talk to patients and families to find out what their values and goals are and how we can move forward. And it's this paradox where patients and families are most often so relieved and so delighted Delight is not the right word, but they get a lot of peace that we've actually had this conversation. And I'll, I'll have walked into a room that's got all this tension and people don't know what's happening and they don't know what they're going to do. And then we, we talk about the truth of what's going on and what the options might be. And, and, and then there's this peace when you leave. And I walk down the hall to go write my chart notes and I almost have to stop myself because it's this amazing feeling connecting with these patients and these families. And if it wasn't for the meditation and all these things that I've been learning, to know what that dis-ease feels like, you, you wouldn't get to experience the joy of the expansive contentment. So. Well, I think you brought up a very important sense is that when you can exist in the now, you feel connected as opposed to when you're disconnected or in your head or anxious or depressed or stressed is you feel disconnected or alone or by yourself. And I mean, we all are connected. We're connected in many ways, physically, emotionally, spiritually, energetically, um, whether we acknowledge it or not. And when we do pay attention to the present, as Pat says, when you're in a merge, which is disaster and everybody running around and people yelling at each other and patients yelling and people being restrained and uh, security guards coming in and ambulances crashing in. And I mean, it's a great environment if you love adrenaline, but it's just so interesting to take that one step back while you're there and acknowledge the fact that you are a part of it, but you're most efficient when you're just a little bit apart from it connected yet not and um, I think that's the best way to be most efficient as a physician is to not necessarily be equanimous but to maintain a big enough distance that allows you to be efficient but at the same time being involved and committed to your goal and that's a tough thing to do but if you stay out of your head then it's easier to do and if you're as you use all these techniques that both of you have described and there's you know it's just trying to trick the, the mind which is always trying to trick us into maybe being quiet for a little while and then allowing our real knowledge to kind of come forth. And the other thing I like about that idea of sitting and watching the chaos of emerge and 
you're only in this one moment watching the chaos of emerge and you have no idea what the emerge is going to look like in one hour it could be twice as worse or twice as bad or it could dissipate into such quiet peacefulness and all of a sudden there might actually be some empty beds like it's hour to hour and day to day everything is impermanent so the chaos is impermanent the joy and elation is impermanent and I think for as physicians, like you said, Mark, earlier, we're very or, um, uh, sort of one-sided, I don't know if it's left brain, but very, very ordered, you know, process-oriented yeah. and, and, and controlling in a way because every aspect of our job demands that we be able to categorize and label and make these judgments. And then on the other hand, we're being asked to step back from that and to not not to believe the rhetoric sometimes. So it's this constant conflict as well. And it's getting out of your head that's, that's super important, right? Because that's, which is also so difficult for all of us to do. Yeah, the unzipping of the ego is a lifetime task. <laughs> and it's, um, we develop our ego to defend ourselves, to defend our territory when we're too, you know, we learn them definition of the word no and then we use it incessantly to the chagrin of our parents and then it just continues on and we try to stabilize our ego by gaining the knowledge that we have to have as adults and then students and then physicians and then at a certain point to relinquish all that important knowledge that we have and that structural ordered thought and the constant labeling, as you say, Pat, and assessment and judging and, uh, you know, that, that's just our nature. And so to, you can't suppress it, but you can, as you say, observe it. And as soon as you are the observer, then you can detach from it mm. and it influences you less. And I think mm -hmm. that's the secret. That's true. Right? Because yeah. you can't stop a river flowing but you can get out of the stream and once you do that then you can make observations and then you can observe the beauty of the stream and you can jump back in it if you want or maybe sometimes it's best just to sit on the side um, but the taming of the mind that's a lifelong pursuit and I think once we finally achieve that then our need to be on earth is probably not as strong and we may loosen those tethers, but you know, that's another conversation. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think he, well, we know that Eckhart Tolle uses a lot of the Buddhist teachings in his book. And uh, um, I, I, I enjoy that because uh, it's this inner critic that's one of the toughest things to overcome for, for, for me and maybe for other people we judge ourselves, you know, as, as life seems to be a mirror. So if we're judging all the time outwards, we're likely judging inwards. And sometimes the inner judge is the toughest judge to battle. And by recognizing that, as you say, Mark, once you, once you can recognize that you're judging yourself or you're extremely hard on yourself and having some self-compassion, it, it's relaxing. It's a sort of emancipating feeling. But it's just the recognition that you're doing that in the first place is the key, one of the keys. 
which I got from the book. Well, being a, I'm, you're not a Buddhist, Pat, but a, a, let's say a lover of Buddhism. You may be a Buddhist, maybe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. No. But there's the, the four noble truths of Buddhism, which the first one, as you know, is life is suffering. And we know that all too well as physicians that <laughs> life is suffering. And one of our goals is to help that suffering, not necessarily end it, but to help it or alleviate it. And the fact is, if you can acknowledge that simple truth that life is suffering, it makes things a little easier because you recognize that that is part of the human condition. That it can't, perfection can't always be the case. And by then going through the other three truths of Buddhism, not that I'm going to talk about that at all, but to recognize where suffering comes from and to take paths to deal with the problems of our mind and attachment, etc., etc., then it gives us a path to enlightenment. And that sounds all way too airy-fairy, but I mean, that's, we all want peace and happiness in a greater or lesser degree. And that's what spurs on all our actions, whether it's misguided or not. But Eckhart Tolle, you've listened to him, you've gone to his talks. Yep. I mean, he's like a little kid in his nature. He's just, you know, he just laughs at himself all the time. It's sort of like um, the Dalai Lama, you know, Dalai Lama just thinks everything is funny all the time because he's so detached from so many things. I mean, of course, he's also the spiritual leader of all, all these people, but he behaves just as if he's a, a, a child. And not to say we should behave like children, but maybe that's not such a bad idea. Well, living in the moment is what they do best, right? Yes, yes. And it's that disease of teenagism that's the interesting one. Anyone who's raised a teenager <laughs> understands the concept of of maybe all the pathways have not finalized yet, and maybe maybe we're still living in the moment, which is interesting arguing with a 13-year-old about thinking about things in the future, because they don't see it. Yeah. Well, the developing brain is fascinating in its function and dysfunction, especially when it's influenced by the superhormones that exist at puberty. Yeah. I found that... Um, uh, the, um, the, this attachment to things that you talked about, um, once you recognize that it's our desire for attachment, I mean, that, that, that in itself is another uh, interesting concept that, that when you think about it, it causes a lot of suffering, right? And the, the feeling that one can have by losing that sense of attachment or that sense that I'm controlled by these things is a wonderful feeling if we could all get there and you know, that's tough I had a really interesting experience about four or five weeks ago some friends of mine took me to the Canary Islands for like nine days and our, on my last day at the Canary Islands I was like in this little bit of something like I, I felt this sadness or grief on my last day that I'm going to be leaving this this beautiful place and it was it was really interesting to think that like 
don't grieve leaving the Canary Islands. You're still here for another eight hours. Just enjoy it. And uh, it was like such a remarkable day. Like that, those last eight hours just went on for so much longer. Instead of grieving and being, you know, upset that I have to leave here, I just really got to enjoy the sunshine and the warmth. And then when my friend and I were traveling back, we had a, a pretty bad trip back where it was going to take three flights to get back home. And I said to her as we were leaving to the airport, I said, in the spirit of this book, nothing is good or bad on this trip. And, and the trip ended up being two delays and missed flights, and it took us five flights to get there. And I just kept saying to her throughout the trip home, which took like 49 hours to get home, but I said, nothing is good or bad. And we had the greatest time together. It was tiring and exhausting, but like I don't look back on it on any kind of regret. So it just made for what should be a terrible situation pretty tolerable. Yeah, I think the Eckhart Tolle um, says that as soon as you label something or judge it, then you're giving it power over you instead of just observing and waiting or wanting to experience, as he says, the isness of things. So once you can experience the isness, that is to let things be as they are, then life flows so much smoother. And 99.9999999% of things we can influence relatively little, if at all. But as physicians, our goal is to influence many things some of us can, some of us can't. It just it depends on so many other factors. And it doesn't mean to relinquish your role as physician. It just means that, that, well, I don't know what it means. Um, it means that maybe if we let things go a little bit more, not let the sodium drop too low or the blood glucose rise too high, <laughs> but, or the intracranial pressure rise too high, that things would work out. Now that's kind of a interesting way of looking at things and from a obsessive compulsive neurosurgical perspective, that's just anathema. <laughs> but I think there is a role for that. And it's trying to figure that out. And it's hard to explain to people out there what it's like to just keep dealing with what's in front of you and doing your best with what's in front of you and experiencing the isness. It's hard to explain what that's like until you try it out. Mm -hmm. I think if you, if, you, and if you look at problems at work as a physician, you know, instead of looking, having all these labels attached to a particular problem, but just to come to the realization that it, it just is. Mm -hmm. This is just is. This is something, but let's not label or judge it or worry about the patient you had in the past who had this, who died, or and, and, and you know, layer all these concerns on from the past and from the future, but to just deal with the moment in the moment, realizing that your level of control is very minimal. As he says, you only have control over the, with the immediate right in front of you. I find that really helps me in, in the hospital, especially with families, because then I don't take their stress on. 
I know they're suffering, you know, but I don't feel the suffering in the sense that they do. Because I look at it more of as a continuum. You know, like this is, this is an issue. This just is. Someone's sick. Someone's close to death. Various people here are having a lot of difficulties handling this moment for various reasons of attachment or whatever. And I find that this broader kind of perspective that I find from these types of re reading these types of materials, this mindfulness, this living the present moment without judgment really helps me, helps me deal with these stressful issues. Yeah, and you get to be with that family. Yeah. And, but not, you're not owning their feelings or the, the situation, but you get to be with them and in presence. Yeah, everybody has a path, and I mean, illness and death sharpen pitfalls in that path, and especially when somebody whose loved one is near or dear, and you haven't dealt with all the stuff that you have to deal with, and their death is imminent, all sorts of specters come up, and that puts people on edge, and we, all of us, deal with that on a regular basis, and we can't change that situation. That's the path that they're treading, but you can acknowledge it and you can, as you say, Pat, be present and that allows you to respond in an open way as opposed to in a defensive way, which what we all resort to if we become defensive about our care or we're looked at as how come we can't pres preserve or prolong life further when it's evident that we can't can't do that and I think it it can help both sides uh, the family and ourselves if we can acknowledge that that by being present and acknowledging the pain of others then it helps them deal with their issues as well without bringing us down, which it tends to do on a regular basis. And hence the need to have some way to be able to um, release the tension that is in, uh, you know, inherent in that work, that work environment. I mean, rarely does a day go by where the day doesn't take a little bit from you right when you're working mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what level you're working at as a physician it's not like you come home at the end of the day no matter how day your how good your day was where you say geez i hardly even, did i go to work today i mean it may be like that for a few but for many of us it's a day fraught with many stresses and tensions and uh, problem solving um, moments that if we take them the wrong way, it can be very, you know, anxiety provoking for us. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we, one thing I've noticed in the workplace uh, for us is that, I mean, Joelle and I, uh, you know, we, we, we're lucky. We have a few colleagues that tend to be a little, like to talk about these issues, you know, and, um, but there needs to be more of that. You know, we, we really need to find a way to to open ourselves up and be a little more vulnerable to the stressors that we all experience in the workplace. Well, suppressed emotions are the path to disease. And the more we suppress 
these issues, the more a chance it can affect us, not just mentally, but physically, right? And it's, um, uh, you bring up a very important point, Patrick, that the more the conversation can occur, the more we can be aware of it, and we can not only help ourselves, but help our colleagues. And I think that's important too. I want to thank both of you for having this conversation and Power of Now Book Club on our podcast, Behind the Stethoscope. I'm going to take this opportunity to close the show by giving thanks to our local facilities engagement uh, group from Eagle Ridge Hospital and Royal Columbian Hospital. And if people out there are liking the show, we would encourage you to write a comment on your podcast providing site. Uh, give us a rating of however many stars you think is appropriate. And if you are interested, uh, donations can be made to help support the podcast through the Royal Columbian Hospital Foundation. And you would just let them know that you want your donation to support the Behind the Stethoscope podcast. So thank you very much, guys, and we'll see you all next time. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.